What the fuck is up, world? Piali, Tlaltic Pak. We're back. Another grito. Short order. It's about three days since my last one, but I couldn't wait to get this one out to you. I was actually going to sit on it for a little while, but fuck no, man. I got my boy here, Aaron, fellow UTEP philosophy department graduate school uh, 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 cohort. Also, my contemporary at El Paso Community College, one of the philosophy professors there. And... Um, yeah, I'm fucking really looking forward to getting him and get, exposing him to you all and all the beautiful shit that he's got to say. But before I do that, a quick little reminder for those of you who have yet to follow your boy on Instagram, OG underscore Ice Knife 13. So with that in mind, I turn it over to my boy, Aaron, and I'll let him introduce himself. Aaron, take it away. So my name is Aaron Alvarez. I actually mainly specialize in historical philosophy, um, social ontology, but not necessarily critical social ontology. They're two different fields. Not I'm saying I'm not against it, of course. And today I'm mainly going to talk a little bit about a few somewhat newer figures, somewhat marginalized figures in philosophy. So that's one of the things that I was looking forward to with Aaron coming out here is that um, I'm actually going to, it's going to be a little bit different. I know I said it was going to be a little bit different in my last one and it was, hopefully you picked that up, but this one's also going to be a little bit different and then I'm actually going to, I'm going to let Aaron do a lot of the talking here because, well, uh, I don't know if he's going to toot his own horn, but I'll fucking do it for him. Aaron's a bad motherfucker. He knows his philosophical shit. He's actually a published author, which is something that I can lay claim to. What's the name of the article, Aaron, that published your art, your, your article? Um, it's in an edited volume. It's... 200 years of Marx and my article is the material and immaterial in Marx, Marx's social ontology. This is a very complex way of saying if you could specifically what? Basically, it was mainly focusing on what are social objects in Marx and are they really material or are they really these immaterial abstract entities, these concepts out there? Okay, cool. Can you give me like an example specifically, like in a, in a, in in a way that I personally can understand? Because I'm still like a little bit lost. I'm not even going to try to front here. So, for the most part, historically speaking, we often identify Marxists as believing everything's made of the material. So, social relations are secretly these emit this material moving in time that we only grasp abstractly. But in reality, there's some elements of Marx that are actually more Hegelian, more abstract. So there's more of a concept unfolding in time and not quite this material object as we've been taught. All right. So I told you, I warned you in the very beginning, my boy Aaron here is a bad motherfucker. He knows his philosophical shit. Okay. Um, I'm going to try to break that down a little bit more lamest terms. The basic idea here is when we're talking about Marx, it's uh, it, it, it requires a little bit of foundation onto the distinction between materialism and idealism. Yes. Sure. And then he introduces a little bit later the Hegelian. Hegel is just this philosopher. I actually did my master's uh, uh, thesis on, on Hegel. Uh, not to congratulate Hegel per se, but to uh, I discuss a lot of the ideas that I obviously didn't agree with. Right. <laughs> so that's where the extent of my Hegelian knowledge and in turn, I guess, uh, dialectical materialist in uh, inclinations goes. But um, when it comes to the idealist realm, the basic gist here is that the, the world, all the universe essentially is comprised of ideas, simply put. Yes. <laughs> Well, this is interesting. This is a fun segue to the kind of these marginal philosophers. You know, we're taught idealism is this claim about metaphysics. The world is made up of ideas, this immaterial or spiritual substance sometimes given. But in reality, it can get pretty hazy sometimes. You know, and I th and some of the philosophers I want to talk about today, especially some of these um, both historical Christian philosophers and contemporary Christian philosophers actually identify themselves in this camp, but they still maintain some of the insights of philosophers like Jean-Paul Sartre and others as well. 
Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to getting into that in a little bit. Um, for now, I still want to dig a little bit more deeper into the relationship between the idealism and the materialism, just in hopes of trying to break it down a little bit more. Uh, it, you, we contrast that then to materialism. And essentially what the materialists are going to want to argue at the most basic level is that all of life is comprised of that, which is uh, 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 of the physical nature. Yes, that there exists nothing outside of the material world, essentially, hence the name materialism. Yes. And it's funny because one of the big problems with materialism as a metaphysical position is we don't actually know what material means. Do fields count as material? How about math? You know, somebody like Donald Stoljar in, in his work titled Materialism or or physicalism, actually, that's the real title, I'm sorry, physicalism, is going to say like, it's a very nebulous term. We don't actually have quite a good grasp of that term. And your standard metaphysics actually has to allow these immaterial floaty things no matter what you want to do. I fucking hate that it's taken me so long to get Aaron on this podcast. We're only about fucking five minutes in and already he's been dropping so much dimes and knowledge. Let me just uh, briefly reiterate a little bit more when it comes to the mathematics part, because it's actually one of my favorite ones personally. Uh, essentially, you could, if you just imagine in your mind's eye, the idea of the number 13. Let's go with the number 13. Yes. Uh, essentially, what Aaron is saying here is that idea of the number 13, just some abstract metaphysical concept in the sense that it's not very material, right? We can't go to where the number 13 was born. We can't go to where the number 13 resides, right? But we know very well that the number 13 exists. I can take a fucking pen and paper and write the number 13 down and it would manifest itself in a material form, right? So it's kind of the idea idea where things start to get just a little bit fucking hazy yes oh yes and like notice when you write that number 13 you might map it into objects in the world but the proof structure of that math is abstract and the that the the physical object what happens to it doesn't change that mathematical object <laughs> just a little bit more breaking it down because i'm just fucking i i we actually have a a, a podcast topic for today right yes, yes. but we're gonna lay the foundation and we're gonna get there slowly but surely for you hopefully not painfully i hope you're enjoying this as much as i am but when he's speaking of these proofs he's talking about you know these logical people can prove to you why two plus two equals four right they can explain to you through these magic, these mathematical proofs. I can't. I'm not a fucking math. I'm not a mathematician. I'm a, I'm a decent logician, right? Mm -hmm. But there's motherfuckers out there. I'm thinking the Saul Kripke's of the world <laughs> who can explain to you basically through like shit reductio and all that other kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Why two plus two equals four, yeah. right? Usually it's tied to um, natural deduction and logic and proof theory in mathematics. And there's it's a whole different field of those things. They'd be looking like those beautiful mind motherfuckers, that movie Beautiful Mind with <laughs> Russell Crowe, where he's just drawing shit on the board. Or what's that other dude, uh, Matt Damon in the movie uh, Goodwill Hunting, where he's just on, you know, once people start getting into that realm, it's like, are we even speaking the same language anymore, man? Oh, man. I mean, it's a really big thing. Like, if you read like some articles by someone like John Corcoran or Saul Kripke, um, or even um, Nancy Cartwright or Susan Hawke, um, all these like philosophers of science and philosophers of math. It's a different language. It's a different world. It really is. And the part that always trips me out about that is that these people are speaking in a different language that I, I, I've qualified it before my podcast. I haven't really got too deep into detail with it. But if the language is, you know, language is something of a barrier to the world that we can understand. Yes. Yeah. I mean, for them, they're seeking. It's funny because they purify language in such a way to map abstract relations. And these abstract relations are then described through puzzles. And by when those abstract relations break down, you get a new language. So, and that's the craziest part to me, because when those those structures break down, it's like they're revealing or exposing different facets of the world that people like myself, fuck, just by a simple lack of ability in mathematics could possibly potentially never even, you know, 
see. You know what I'm saying? No, yes. And it's funny because there's another tradition in logic um, literature, and this is uh, exemplified with um, philosophers like Catherine Dulithnove, who believe language should ground out in your personal experience. And it's there where we see math unfold. Yeah. So all you dumb motherfuckers out there, you need to pick up a thesaurus and help reveal yourself to a little bit more of the world <laughs> that exists out there is basically what the philosophers in this particular case are trying to tell people like myself. <laughs> Oh, man. Maybe not as explicitly. I get it, right? But this is where you know a little bit of the hood philosophy kicks in because I'm just like, yo, after a certain point, after a certain point, we got to ask ourselves, like, okay, obviously. And the reason I'm bringing this up is, and I'll tie it back in with the Marxism and all that shortly. Be, but uh, the, the simple gist is, people like me and you, definitely philosophers in general, but also just the highly educated academics specifically, right? We kind of get a bum rap by individuals who think we're very elitist in a sense. Yeah. And the comment that I just made obviously is very indicative of that, right? It's very it's intended to be a self-depreciating comment because I'm openly admitting that I don't even know what the fuck they're talking about. Like I can regurgitate to you what they've said, right? But to be able to contextualize everything that you said about these mathematical proofs, breaking down these structures and revealing new worlds and all that kind of shit, that's really just this abstract idea that exists within my head. You know what I'm saying? No, yeah. And, you know, there is a tradition of philosophy that does focus on that as being the goal of philosophy, this kind of um, world building. Yeah. Oh, I'm a, a huge fan of the concept of world building, no doubt. Now, uh, with that in mind, I want to shift gears just slightly because I'm still going to get back to the whole Marxism thing. But uh, the reason is because actually one of the recurring themes that I found when I was researching this, uh, this podcast for today, I'm not going to lie. So we're going to discuss a little bit of Christian, uh, just a little bit, right, of Christian existentialism. We're gonna try to just scratch the surface because it's a very it's a very broad field, yeah. yes. But um, obviously, as a non not as a non religious person, as an a religious person, definitely as not a Christian, my knowledge of Christian existentialism is severely limited. It's limited to essentially one philosopher, and that is the gentleman Soren Kierkegaard. Yes. 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 Uh, now I've said it in the podcast before. I've qualified it. Maybe you've heard it in the past, but this is gonna be my first actual treatment of Kierkegaard in this podcast. And one of the things that as I was going through my Kierkegaard, my Kierkegaard lecture, uh, le uh, lecture notes in preparation for today was this idea how he feels that these abstract concepts, kind of like proof and logic, uh, proofs and logic and all that kind of stuff, right? How they can't just be superimposed upon an individual, right? That it's the, it's the, it's the task, if you will, of the individual, like myself in the case of logic, to Immerse, immerse themselves with the material and, you know, enlighten themselves as to the truths of what the material itself is trying to, uh, to tell us, right? Of course, with the Kierkegaard sense, he's talking about God specifically. Yes, I mean, this is an interesting thing about Kierkegaard. So we remember him as this Christian philosopher, but in reality, he's making these other claims about epistemology and metaphysics and philosophy of religion. And you're completely right that he is trying to have us understand the role we play in constructing these types of relations and these types of objects, which is, in all honesty, heretical, pardon the pun, right, for traditional metaphysics. Absolutely. And for sure, for the cr traditional Christian upbringing that he was founding himself in, and where, what was it exactly? Um, shit, I just completely forgot the top of my head. But the point that I'm trying to make is that he was not necessarily a very well-liked person in the society that he was living in because of his views towards just religion in general. It's almost sacrilege in the sense that he was advocating for an individual relationship with the Most High, the Absolute. Well, it's funny. So, when Kierkegaard's writing, he's rejecting this growing Hegelian consensus that's going to die very quickly after he <laughs> dies, oddly enough. And this consensus believed 
that not only was belief in God purely rational, but you could prove all elements of theology, what was otherwise seen as a part of revealed religion. So philosophy of religion, we like to make this distinction between natural theology, which is the stuff like Aquinas's proofs are, and as well as claims about Anselm's like ontological argument, these type of proofs. But then we also talk about revealed religion. This is kind of like the stuff that's revealed. It's not something that can be found through reason alone. And Hegel kind of opened up this massive field where he wanted to try to prove everything. In fact, if you read Hegel, there's even growing works about Hegel that he's actually very orthodox in theology. And I mean orthodox here with the little O, not the Eastern Orthodox. Um, but rather this idea that like, yeah, I can prove the reincarnation to you. I could just show you the proofs and I can rationally deduce it. And history had to be this way. And Kierkegaard's rejecting this. He wants to take it back. He wants to go back to this almost kind of like a return of what he understands to be the patristic heritage in his own way. And patristics here is a technical term referring to Christian philosophers and theologians from 180 to around 980. And it covers different, we now identify as Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, Oriental Orthodox, and even in some cases, Church of the East Christians. Sorry, I was taking a quick swig there of water. You caught me with my pants down. No, sorry. Um, but yeah, okay. So picking up from there, then let's let, let's get a little bit deeper. Not too deep because this is not a podcast for him per se. But obviously, given okay, so let's uh, historical uh, context just is situated clearly. Kierkegaard was not a fan of Hegel, as I'm sure Aaron, if he didn't explicitly make clear it, it, through his wording, is, is is allowing uh you know those of you who are listening to you know gain insight to. Um, and one of the reasons again was that it's. All a variety of reasons, okay. One of which being it's a very totalizing theory, this Hegelian philosophy, right? And uh, it doesn't leave room in this philosophy for an individual person in the sense that in this Hegelian philosophy, it's very deterministic. There's no, no, there's not necessarily much room for the free will, right? Which Kierkegaard is, you know, as somewhat of a father of the of the Western uh, existential tradition of philosophy, is going to clearly reject, right? Um, a little bit more insight to this Hegelian character, though, is Aaron spoke of the of the of the of the, of the, of the revealing itself through the history, right? He's, he feels as though there's this zeitgeist, this spirit that's mm -hmm. unfolding through a very logical, progressive manner. Now, I've talked about it briefly in the podcast in the past, namely how this philosophy is the is the foundation for much of the well, definitely the United States of America, but much of the Western world in general. The ideas of manifest destiny and the such, right? Um, but as for this uh, Hegelian character, this is all part of this grand, again, totalizing process in history that's going to culminate eventually in this absolute world where freedom is known by all individuals and the like, right? Yes, and it's very interesting. So Hegel and the original formula earlier formulations, and there's a lot of debate about Hegel, the left Hegelians, the right Hegelians, the center Hegelians. Um, Hegel for himself seemed to treat this absolute spirit as the pre-incarnate logos, perhaps? So in the Christian theology, before the incarnation of Jesus as Christ, the idea is that it was a pre-incarnate logo, sometimes wisdom or Sophia, or the Holy Spirit. And so there's kind of this element where Hegel is trying to synthesize both a extremely Enlightenment age rational strand, rejecting Kant or his teacher, but also at the same time embracing a pure absolute idealism, this idea that everything is idea. And since my mind is part similar to a different type of this larger mind we can grasp pure ideas and the phenomena things as they appear is the noumena is the essence itself 
So much deep philosophy in there. We could spend entire, not just one, multiple podcasts discussing shit like noumena, nominal, all that kind of shit, right? But for now, just for the sake of getting to the uh, the central gist for today's podcast, I'm going to actually use that as a segue to return back to the materialism, the distinction here, the difficulty that we find these philosophers discussing. And then we'll get into the Kierkegaard aspect because, well, the Kierkegaard aspect comes simply, his answer is going to be, dude, there's no way you can fucking answer this. In fact, the desire to answer to this is part of the fucking problem, right? Oh, yeah. So I, I'm imagining that you got a little bit of an idea of where I'm going with this. If you feel more than free to jump in and go ahead and uh, close it out. Oh, yeah. So in many ways, the Enlightenment Age philosophy was often characterized by a focus on metaphysics. And it's funny because even when we talk about the rationalists and the empiricists, these two broad epistemological positions driving Enlightenment Age philosophy with Kant, there's kind of an attempt to squash that and go back to like pure epistemology. With Hegel, there's a return to pure metaphysics. What is reality made of? What is time? What is being itself? And Hegel is selling this program where we have direct knowledge of that. But for Kierkegaard, this is where things are going wrong. Because not only can we not know these things, they don't matter. Simply put, it's the wrong way to pursue things. And Kierkegaard here is tapping in, not just into this um, view of Christian thought, but also like kind of like a historical type of philosophy where philosophy acts as therapy. It's a way of acting in the world and being in the world. All right. So if you don't mind with that right there, I want to take a quick moment to share one of my favorite quotes by Kierkegaard. Okay. It's not a, a direct quote per se, because he's, re- he, he's writing, he's not writing in the English language. But when I was uh, going back through these notes again, it, it really, really stuck out to me. And the quote goes as follows. What I really lack is to be clear in my mind what I am to do. Not what I am to know, except insofar as a certain understanding must precede every action. The thing is to understand myself, to see what God really wishes me to do. The thing is to find the truth that is true for me, to find the idea for which I can live and die. Right? So I want to see you get your thoughts on that. You see, this is a such a wonderful um, quote because it captures multiple levels. So one thing is that Kierkegaard here is playing with Hegelian language itself. In fact, if you look closely, he has a dialectic going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the word geist here, spirit, mind, right, could also refer to the Hegelian spirit or mind. But he's what is he saying here? It's not the absolute spirit I get for Kierkegaard. Instead, it's myself. And this has a lot of theological imagery and value in itself. So in traditional Christian theology, broadly construed here, the idea is that man is made in the image and likeness of God. So by Kierkegaard getting knowledge of himself, he's getting knowledge of God. And in virtue of that, this nature of the incarnation, he's rejecting this Hegelian God who's very abstract, immaterial, this pure concept who I can know the complete essence of. And in many ways, Kierkegaard here is tapping into this larger patristic apophatic theology. For those that don't know, apophatic theology is a type of theology in which I can only talk about what God is not. And this contrasts very greatly from cataphatic theology, knowledge of what God is directly. So in many ways, Kierkegaard here is not just inverting the Hegelian formula, but he's making this larger theological claim to his, assumably at his time period, Christian view, um, viewers and readers, but also making these larger claims about philosophical method. What is philosophical method about? Myself. And what is a source of knowledge about God? Knowledge about myself. Only through that can I acquire knowledge about what God is not. 
beautiful it's such a perfect summation it's such a concise summation it's such a not it's not i i i find kierkegaard to be a very clear writer unlike hegel hegel maybe even just a terrible writer right <laughs> but kierkegaard uh i find him to be a very clear writer in the sense that he's very he very eloquently uh delivers his ideas but even then they're still pretty they're pretty you know they're verbose like most philosophy is right it requires a lot of pre-knowledge of a lot of the concepts he's discussing but i feel as though that as clear and concise as what he's discussing as as, as a good job if he does is this, uh, 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 revealing to us the ideas in his head the ideas themselves are still so dense that to be able to engage with them right on an individual level kind of like what he's going to ask of us to do in the first place right it uh it, it's very it's it's a very undertaking experience right it requires a lot from us as the reader the the kicker guardian whatever the case might be right mm-hmm. so in that sense i think you did a really good job of uh, uh of explaining that in such a way that's like yo when it comes to philosophy let me ask you this now this is you on a personal level because obviously you're a fellow you're a philosophy professor right what do you think the purpose of philosophy is to be? You personally, Aaron, not Kierkegaard, not Nietzsche, not Hegel, you, Aaron Alvarez. Mm-hmm. Well, I think philosophy at its core is concept production. And I, I take this a lot from Deleuze myself, actually. And I think this nature of these concepts we produce then transform into the other types of philosophy, whether it's philosophy as a type of life living, or if it's a type of system building like Kant, or if it's a type of interaction in this larger, or even the relational ontology of someone like Christosian and us working from the post-Heideggerian tradition. In many ways, at their ground level, I believe philosophy in itself is ability to produce the concepts and the possibilities to create a new world. Awesome. And the reason I ask is because, uh, well, obviously, you and I are getting ready to start the semester very, very shortly, oh, right? Yeah, so, yeah. And it's one of the very first questions. I, I like to just address the question right out the box um, because, well, obviously, as philosophy, as philo- I was trying to say philosophers and philosophy professors, my apologies, right? But as uh, the professors of philosophy, we happen to find ourselves in a field where we have a considerable amount. Actually, I was, I was, I was pleasantly surprised to see how many philosophy majors we have. Hopefully, through my class and your class and this podcast, we can convert just a few more, right? <laughs> yeah, but aside from that, we don't really uh, get a lot of students in our classrooms who are philosophy majors right yes so one of the things that i like to just address right out the box is i get that you as a student are not necessarily unless you're the philosophy major here because this is something that you were really excited to be doing right most of us are here because it is a course requirement and philosophy seemed the more interesting alternative the more appealing alternative to what other of ever other electives are required as part of the core curriculum right so the reason i like to address it then is to just let it be known. Like it may not seem as though, at least at first glance, right? At first glance, it may not seem as though what the philosophy is that we are discussing has anything to do with you. However, once we take the time to actually engage with these ideas, once we take the time to actually immerse ourselves in these ideas, we start to realize that, yo, this philosophy is some shit that I've been living my entire, my whole life. I may not have realized it. I may not have had the language to properly articulate it as such, but I have had the ideas before in my life. Like, what does fucking, what is the essence of the number 13? 
is it possible to know God in this particular realm right here and so on and so forth, right? And thus, in returning back to the kicker guardian concept, the reason that I ask you is because, well, according for him, again, I'm going to follow up a little bit more quotes here. He's going to tell us that the job of philosophy is not this detached search for knowledge and understanding so much as it's this involved and even desperate quest to find out what to do with one's life. Yeah, and it's funny this you bring this up because the past APA newsletter actually had an article in the education section arguing we shouldn't teach Kierkegaard to our students. I, I apologize. I don't know the author's name off the top of my head. Um, but, it, but it's interesting to keep this in mind while we're discussing this. Now, uh, do you remember any of the specific reasons why? Yes, because the author's argument, she argued, um, was that it actually gives you a bad influence about what philosophy is. So if you, t- the argument was that if you see philosophy just as Kierkegaard does, you'll see no value in any other philosophy. You won't see value in traditional metaphysics or traditional epistemology. You just don't care anymore. Okay, now I'm getting a little lost here. I'm not going to lie because I'm going to have to read his article because my entire conception of Kierkegaard philosophy is that there is something of a point and that point is to establish the one-on-one relationship with the absolute. It's funny because I agree 100% with you on this. But I think the issue here is that that personal relationship isn't seen as truth conducive in this other model of philosophy this author is assuming. Understand. Okay, beautiful. So I guess that that also gets us back, and that'll be another segue to the next talking point that I have here, to the initial question that I asked you, and that is what you personally believe that philosophy is. Uh, for those of us who you know are listening, obviously you'll notice, you'll remember, you'll recall that he gave you gave us about three different you gave us three different uh, answers. Yeah. One was concept building, and the other two I forgot. One's a type of system building. System building. Other is the way of life and way of acting model. Okay. So a more normative model. Yes. Like what to do with one's life. Yes. Yes. Okay. And then usually the third one is often the model of the tool model. You know, the idea is that philosophy is here to fix the gaps in knowledge. This is actually what Hegel had in mind with his yes. Aula Minerva. Absolutely. Science, philosophy is just there to help the sciences and produce the concepts sciences will use. And it's always late, he said. <laughs> Good old Aula Minerva coming at the flying at the, what is it, at, at dusk. Yes, right? yes. Um, anyways, now, if you were to ask me personally, I definitely would agree with the concept building. I would, uh, I, to be more specific, given my uh, rhetoric, my uh, rhetorical inclinations now, because obviously that's what I'm getting my mm-hmm. PhD in, I would refer to that as uh, invention, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's just invention. We fucking... We're, and I don't want to uh, say the word invention and give the term of just making shit up, but it also is kind of just making shit up, right? But it's not making shit up out of nowhere. It's, you know, applying past ideas, and this will get into your second part, the tool, the use of tools, like uh, philosophy as an actual tool right? Whether to help guide us and like a compass, if you will, towards living a good life or an actual tool like a fucking hammer. I'm showing my phenomenological inclinations here, right? My Jules Simon's influence here, (laughs) like an actual hammer that we use as philosophy to help, you know, build these grand ideas that we have in life, right? But I would also say me personally, and this is where I return back to the Kierkegaardian conception, is that as I find myself immersed more in this indigenous Mexica philosophy, it's something of a tool in this case, I guess, to help make strong, if you will, the countenance of the heart and the face of an individual person, right? Mm-hmm. So when we come back to this Kierkegaardian philosophy, I this is interesting. Now, I want to get your thoughts on this. I'm not saying it's necessarily true, but... I found it to be somewhat of a postmodernist, him specifically, to at least have something of a postmodernist bent in a sense, right? Not in the sense that he's going to assert the duality of multiple gods, for instance, because he's very clear, the absolute, he's talking about one God and one God only. Yes. Yes. However, 
He is not. He is going to come along and say that we're not just able to embrace another person's idea of what this godlike entity is. We're not able to just embrace another person's idea of what another of what philosophy is. Right? It's a it's it's an individual path that must be undertaken by the one subjective individual human being. Right. So when I say the 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 postmodern ish, I don't want to. You know, obviously he's not a postmodernist, but that's where this interpretation. That's where I started getting this understanding. Is like, yo, that challenge, that challenge to the individual person to go off and find this truth on their own. That's very unique in many in, in many instances, as opposed to these other philosophies like this Hegelian system. Again, speaking about it in this grand total uh, apology, uh, totalizing form. Right. I think this is an interesting thing you bring up because one of the de- common debates in the literature about Kierkegaard is how postmodern he, he is. I think one g- argument about this type of claim about his view of God is that God, he's actually making an argument much like a radicalized version of, re- of Swinburne's argument about the necessity of the incarnation. So in other words, if God doesn't have a human type of features, we can never know God. You should be an atheist. Okay, But Kierkegaard's even going further that if you don't have if it isn't human like you can't love it in itself because it can't love back and therefore it is not an object of knowledge another i think reading of this type of claim is the more straightforward postmodern which is that at its core every act of belief one has is actually an act of imbuing value so the imbuing value part is actually another beautiful segue to another talking point that i have here and that is the the ethical component in Kierkegaardian philosophy. Now, I'm not speaking specifically here in terms of things such as the night of faith and resignation. Not yet. Maybe if we have enough time today, we can definitely get into it. But I'm speaking more in terms of how philosophy and the engagement thereof with is viewed as an ethical dilemma. Namely, one's commitment to it, because in committing ourselves to this philosophical endeavor, or rather, even in not committing ourselves to a philosophical endeavor, we are conscientiously or unconscientiously making a choice of that's going to ultimately determine the outcome of our life, right? So, in getting back to this existential, I mean, again, he's considered the fucking forefather yes, in yes. the Western tradition of existential philosophy, right? And this is going to hearken to such issues as authenticity, right? That we'll find later with like Heidegger and shit, where he's going to say, yo, Dasein, man, you either choose or you don't choose one way or another the choice to not choose is still choosing in and of itself right yes, yes. so you're either going to live a good life or you're not you make the choice you don't fucking have much time so figure it out quickly right and we kind of see this already starting to be laid the foundation with this Kierkegaardian character well it's funny because i think Kierkegaard's even more ahead than heidegger in some ways he almost foresees some of the issues of heidegger's position and and by by that i mean almost a similar debate that pops up between jean-paul sartre and gabriel marcel this issue that so there's a very famous debate between Gabriel Marcel and Jean-Paul Sartre, and it's actually related to their politics about post-Vichy France. So for those of you who don't know, France was briefly occupied by the Nazis, and Sartre was perfectly okay with a court system creating kind of like fake trials for these Nazis. Gabriel Marcel was horrified at this and thought they should still get the traditional court trials. Now, Sartre defended his ethical reasoning on dialectical lines so the idea was that in a dialectical material way what one will absorb and kind of ethics develops as a material constitution kierkegaard in many ways prefigures gabriel marcel who's also a christian philosopher in the same vein as kierkegaard actually literally they refer to each other um and he's going to make this larger claim that even if something is the case it doesn't mean it ought be the case. And this is a radicalization of Hume's is-ought distinction. But in the case of Kierkegaard and 
Marcel, what's added is this element of I need to give myself the value to the ethical statement. So I may have all these normative ethical theories out there, but at a ground level, I still have to choose and make it my own. And this is a very radical critique that even Sartre saw later on his criteria, and he didn't finish creating an ethical, actual full ethical system. He died before he could do it. I mean, one could be forgiven, John Paul Sartre. I mean, I have a very complicated relationship with John Paul Sartre. I'm not going to lie. He was one of my favorite, first favorite philosophers. I actually have a fucking John Paul Sartre tattoo, right? But then I found out about all the de Beauvoir grooming shit. And I was like, God damn it, man. They always fucking pull some shit like that, right? <laughs> uh, just a quick uh, history lesson. In terms of Sartre and philosophy, John Paul Sartre, one of the most famous philosophers, period, in the history of philosophy, definitely in the modern philosophy period. Definitely in France, he got like full state funeral and shit when he was buried, right? But he also had this thing where him and his, not wife, but life partner, they would groom young ladies to be his inevitable lover, right? It's a very complex, very complicated relationship <laughs> yeah. with that, right? However, we'll put that a little ad hominem aside. I like to just introduce it because, you know, I, I like to be fair and balanced to the people who are going to, they're hearing this for the first time, learning this gentleman for the first time, you know what I mean? And it's like, ugh, you know, we got to be as... The same way that we would qualify that I have qualified Heidegger being a Nazi, yeah, I yeah. feel compelled to be to highlight this. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Anyways, from besides the point, uh, I think uh, that's not. I don't think I know for a fact this Marcel. I'm not familiar with Marcel, so if you want to enlighten me more here shortly, I'm all fucking ears. Uh, like I said, no knowledge of the Christian existential tradition outside of uh, uh, Kierkegaard. However, there's an idea that emerged through what you did a little bit that you did tell me, and that is um, the Kierkegaardian influence being here. The importance uh of having this uh or rather not the not the importance per se well the importance will come here shortly it'll emerge shortly but more importantly the emergence uh it come the um, it it comes from the critique of what he's going to call this passionless existence that he found during his time frame right so the connection here with his marcel and maybe you can enlighten me on it i'm not sure how deep it goes is that it seems as though even his marcel character is calling people to action right to find you know like we're not just this this fucking a cog in a machine like you are an individual person and that you should act as as such no completely and kierkegaard and marcel both share this commitment that one is at a core a person and here this is this is actually taking on now a little bit of theological baggage it's taking on the idea that one is intrinsically a value-given being, and one imbues this value through one's actions. And it's funny because Marcel is actually going to critique Sartre's earlier models of this, his ontology. So for Sartre, there's an ontology of the for itself and the in itself. And the for itself chooses, and the in itself is like a rock. It's just kind of there. It's passive. And Marcel's like... This ontology's flaw is it conceives of reality not relationally. Instead, it's actually just as holistic as somebody like Hegel. The reason why is because it puts, it puts beings in opposition to each other. And for Marcel and Kierkegaard, the error is to think of oneself as single cog, this atomized being who has no value and has value given outside of itself. Instead, one lives in dialogue and relation with others. Absolutely. So I guess for those of you who feel as though your head's spinning with all the fucking knowledge that Aaron is dropping here, please feel uh, uh, feel comfortable in knowing that I myself am A, with you, but B, that it, a lot of what he's, we've been talking about so far, it's interrelated, right? So just to uh, backtrack a little bit, uh, we'll, I'll speak specifically here in terms of the Hegelian element, right? When I mentioned earlier this totalizing system, I'm really having trouble with that word today. I don't know yeah. why. Totalizing system. Fuck. Right? <laughs> Uh, it doesn't really leave much room for free will. 
And this is not good because according to this Kierkegaardian character and the ensuing, you know, existential philosophers that he sunned in the Western tradition, right? Uh, free will is like the their, that, that's their shit right that's yes. that, that's the, that's what they hold on to they're gonna always say that you were always fucking solely responsible for your choices even when you don't think that you're responsible for them you are radically free homeboy meaning that at any given moment if you don't like some shit it's entirely within your responsibility to change it right and this is gonna differ from this uh from rather this hegelian character who essentially the way that i like to explain it is the Donnie Darko example, <laughs> right? Because, okay, going back to the, the Geist that Aaron mentioned earlier, the spirit, right? This Hegelian character feels as though spirit is unfolding through this fucking slaughter bench of history, right? Uh-huh. And that what we are as people realistically is nothing more than puppets. We're cogs in a machine through which Geist, this spirit, is acting through. Right, so where the Donnie Darko uh, situ- uh, uh, example comes into play is kind of that. Yeah, have you seen Donnie Darko? Yes, I have. Okay, cool. So, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't. Right, fucking turn this shit off for the next two minutes or so. Don't turn it off completely though. You fuck. Listen all the way through. <laughs> right. Anyways, uh, the point is that part of the scene in Donnie Darko when he's sitting on the couch at, at, at the party. Right. Yeah. And all of a sudden, that little bubble just bloop, it pops out of his chest. Right. And the bubble leads him upstairs. And then, well, I won't spoil it too much from there. Right. But the, 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 the gist is that this bubble is guiding his direction. Right. And the whole movie unfurls in accordance to that one action. So that's kind of what this Hegelian character is trying to say in regards to individual people like you and I. We didn't choose Aaron, according to Hegel, to be sitting here podcasting today mm-hmm. about philosophy. Right. Spirit chose us. And we are simply acting in accordance to spirit's desires to manifest this absolute to build the future necessary for this uh this absolute to unfold yes now this is fucking terrible because it leaves the room when you strip people of free will you've basically taken away any moral agency at all whatsoever and you open the door for all kinds of immoral actions and it's funny you bring this up because the example i like to give to kind of capture also the social philosophy of hegel is that for hegel reality is like a bioware video game this type of RPG that has fixed paths. You choose one faction versus another and you kind of take on the role and that role is who you are and it's in this larger system. And for Hegel, the institution is everything. And in reality, you're realizing institution through your choices in this kind of like pre-planned narrative. And the, an important detail of this also is how this goes against much of Christian theology. So even going back to far as Alcun's court, when Gottschalk first argued for in the latin christian world for determinism philosophers like john scottus Urugena were already arguing for free will and they often argued in a semi-compatibilist way whereas somebody like kierkegaard is arguing for a much more radical direction okay so uh and with with that in mind when it comes back to regarding character and the concept of free will especially in his uh, uh uh in this radical way that you refer to it as i think now is as good a time as any to actually get into the most fucking fundamental question that we should ask from the very beginning why why what more specifically is driving kierkegaard to be so fucking preoccupied with this shit now it's funny because this is i think where we see kierkegaard and the narrative we give about him different from what his own arguments are so for those of you who don't know kierkegaard often wrote under pseudonyms oh, i fucking love that about him <laughs> and this is actually a very unique metaphilosophical thing and i on myself could never write this way uh, i'm already yeah. prefacing this um, what he does is each way you read a text almost acts like a litmus test of who you are as a person. And for Kierkegaard, he's not going to say, I'm here to prove God to you. He's not doing that. Nope. No. One what of my favorite things about him. Nope. He's not doing that. What he's going to do is, who are you? 
as a reader? And who do you want to be? And what is the relation between the two? And what is the feeling you have between these two things? And his philosophy is a large engagement with yourself and asking those two questions, interacting with these colorful figures, making their own choices. And how you react to them in many ways reflects on you and who you feel you are and how you can live with yourself. And it's here that these other claims appear. You're going to see, and you hear, you see kind of here an, a phenomenological method at its core. It is, and it's very interesting here because it's, this is kind of a pre, um, we often like to talk in phenomenology of the classical phenomenologist, the hermeneutic phenomenologist, you know, the analytic phenomenologist. Kierkegaard, he's making his own kind of hybrid because in many ways for the, for the classical phenomenologist in this early form, the idea was to capture these Kantian categories in their pure form. So Kant, for those of you who don't know, believed that there are these things that were both necessary for our experiences. And these were these categories of the understandings. These were things you needed to have an experience and to understand in the Kantian sense something. For Kierkegaard, he's trying to say, was it necessary to be a person? What experiences and ideas do you need to have to be one? And he's going to respond, anxiety. His notion of just overall angst and dread and anxiety. Again, Kierkegaard, basically a fucking 16th, 17th century, rather emo, right? Yeah, literally <laughs> in, in the, the original. Most, in the most, he's the original emo. He's sunned, he, I guess he's sunned lots of things, man. You could fucking add my chemical romance to the mix as well, right? But, um, the notion of anxiety now is, it's very prominent in the existential tradition of philosophy, right? So when it comes to him specifically, I was hoping you could elaborate a little bit more on what his, how, uh, dread, anxiety, and uh, as such, it, it figures so prominently in how he believes that we as individuals should engage with it. it never really goes away. It never really goes away, right? And uh, if anything, at least to make the connection between his beliefs with Christianity as a form of suffering. Oh yes, yes. So a key feature of and he of Kierkegaard, and there's this larger undercurrent of this, is that he identifies anxiety with original sin or ancestral strain in the Eastern Christian traditions. One of the two, either the Latin Christian um, original sin or the Eastern Christian ancestral sin. There's slight differences. Um, for Kierkegaard, one lives with this, what he called the sickness unto death. It doesn't go away till you die. Because it's that, only First of all, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but goddamn, is that one of the coolest fucking terms in philosophy? Sickness unto death. Bitch, you're sick and you're never going to cure until you die, right? Like, come on now, son. Exactly. And the idea is that Every moment we make is suffering because we give up one thing for another and, and every choice we do imbues reality with value. And for Kierkegaard, theologically speaking, this is what it means to be made in the image of God. One has the ability to freely choose. And this, this view, by the way, takes up it pops up in later thinkers such as Christos Yanidas with his work Ethics as Freedom. He's a contemporary neo-version of this model as well as other philosophers like Lev Shevtov. For him, he's going to say that the actual basis of experience is despair, which leads to anxiety. Because one despairs at the fact that one must choose. I'm gonna. I'm not familiar. Is that, are they more? Are those more Christian existentialists? Yes, sir. They are. Yes, and my knowledge about them is just. Whew, it's sorely, sorely lacking, man. And I say sorely because yo, I fuck with those ideas, right? Those are all deep fucking issues that you know. Obviously, people 
everybody, man, I don't give a fuck. This is, again, going back to that point of why study philosophy, if you will, that we were discussing a, a couple of minutes back in the podcast. Yo, uh, in my classes specifically, I tell my students like, okay, let's get, pla- let's get past the surface level. The surface level is yes. Everything that you were learning in this philosophy class is applicable to your class or your specific major because philosophy is the quote unquote queen of all the sciences, right? I don't give a fuck. Your chemistry, biology, pre-med, philosophy is the underpins, the alma minerva, whatever you want to call it, right? Uh, secondly, though, beyond all of that, at a more fundamental, even primal level, if I may, right, is the fact that I don't give a fuck who you are. Everybody at one point or another has stayed up late at night, woken up early in the morning, fucking three o'clock in the morning, I call it the witching hour, right? Fucking asked themselves, what the fuck is all, what is it all for? What is the meaning of all this? Where do we go when we die? Why was I born? Where was I before I was born? Right? All these kinds of questions that lead to fucking deep-seated feelings of dread and despair and anxiety, right? So that uh, I've, you know, not conscientiously, it's just never really dr- uh, uh, called my attention. These Christian philosophers, uh, you know, that, that that's where I say it's sorely lacking because obviously they're going to have, if they built systems about it, they're going to have some fucking shit to say about these very feelings. You know what I'm saying? No, yes. And it's funny because like we often hear that title, Christian philosopher, like, well, you have to be Christian to read these guys. And the answer is not really. In many ways, especially with figures like Kierkegaard and even like um, Yanidas, you'll have this split part where there's both a philosophy, a theology, and then a, philosoph- a philosophical religious view. And these are three different things. And one could accept one while rejecting the others very easily. Absolutely. I could not fucking agree more. Uh, in that respect, I guess that's why uh, one of the reasons why I've, I've always given it up to Kierkegaard is because he makes it like you you already qualified it, right? But it definitely bears repeating, man. He makes it perfectly clear. Yeah, motherfucker, I'm a Christian, but I don't give a fuck if you are. This is just me giving you the knowledge that I found through this through this you know inquiry, and it's the one that has brought me to the truth that I have in my life. Doesn't mean that it's for you. You don't have to accept the Christian faith. Listen to the knowledge that I'm giving you, though, right? Listen to the dimes that I'm fucking drop, the gems that I'm dropping here, and you'll understand that it's a part of a shared collective human experience. And it's very interesting. Um, for example, because to build on that note, there's a few cases where Kierkegaard is also preempting a tradition that appears later with figures like Emil Sorian, who's a very controversial philosopher, also possibly a Nazi. And he was an absurdist. Oh, please don't tell me he was a Nazi. Um, What's funny, he got kicked out of the Romanian, amongst Romanian Nazis because of his um, pessimism. Oh, wow. Getting kicked out of a Nazi uh, group for being a pessimist? That's a pretty fucking great accomplishment. Yes. um, (laughs) And uh, also, Christos Yannidos will also do this move and they'll say like, maybe the Christian God is real and it's obvious to you. But you still have the option to, to reject it. Absolutely. And that, that is a thing. What, actually, now that you mention it, it harkens back to two, two ideas. Specifically, one is the, is, I'm familiar, I, don't, I forget the word they use specifically with it, but I'm more, speci- I'm more familiar with the term, the negative theology, right? Yes. And not negative in the sense of like, oh, we're bashing theology, but more so in the sense of the knowledge that you have of, you know, uh, I say absolute, man, but those of you who are listening, it should be, I'll call it absolute, the most high God consciousness, right? That's just my language hangups when it comes to referring outright specifically to God because of how loaded language is is right which gets us to the second point here and that's all we talked about at the very fucking beginning of the podcast how language itself is something of a barrier right yes, yes. and that maybe for people like myself uh, a little bit of uh, context i actually was talking about this with aaron before we started the podcast and it was uh speaking in regards to my hyper village uh, uh militancy when i was younger when it came through when it came to religion obviously 
Uh, I'm not going to go so far as to say anymore, even that I'm an outright atheist, man. Uh, I will say not even agnostic. I'm just, I'm just here. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't yeah. fucking care. I don't, I don't want to say I don't care in the sense that like I've given up hope in this, of trying to figure out the answer so much. And I guess to qualify it, this, this now watch philosophy is like, it's all one. Dog. I'm a, a, a monist in the most absolute sense. Yes. yes However, yes. Uh, when it comes to this language, one of the reasons that I started becoming less hypervigilant is because I started realizing like, yo, there's reality is fucking crazy. I don't need to be the one to tell you this. You no, fucking no. have figured this out before in your past. If you're listening to this, chances are you're listening to it because you yourself have realized it as well. Right. And to completely dismiss a facet of reality because it has, you know, of the historical baggage that has become associated with it. It's 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 pretty fucking silly, man. You know what I'm saying? And it's important, like um, in philosophy or religion, you can be a realist about God or you can be an anti-realist. A realist believes when I use the word God, I refer to this being or entity in some form. And there we could have different views about what God is. I mean, there's classical theism, which is God is the maximal being that you're using as you're discussing. And there's sub-variants of this. And there's personalistic theism. Let's say God itself appears for and foremost as a person. Right? This is um, something like... Um, Jacques Martin, for example, who's also in a similar line of this tradition we're talking about in general, but he's a little more complex in some ways. And there's also um, non-traditional theisms, process theology or things like um, polytheism or things like that. Those are all because they have different properties. In these views, God has very different properties. Now, the reason I bring up then the whole language part and the, the importance to make a distinction is because... All right, so let's let let's talk about it specifically through Kierkegaard, and then we'll work our way up to the larger uh, argument. Right? Again, although I'm not a Christian, the idea of suffering is one that I really fucking vibe with, man. Now, I'm not trying to give the impression that I've lived a fucking terrible life. I haven't. I've lived a pretty fucking blessed life. Knock on wood. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm thankful for the life I've led. However, I'm not going to fucking dismiss the you know little bit of emotional, if you will, psychic even suffering that all of us fucking endure, right? So when it comes to this fucking Kierkegaardian character, when what really struck me when he said that Christianity is suffering because me personally, I have come to find that it's through the suffering specifically that I have been able to reveal to myself greater truths about the nature of reality. And that one of those greater truths is the possibility that, yo, you know what? Again, I'm not trying to make a dualist claim here. I'm not saying that I comprise a body and a mind. I'm not definitely saying that I'm religious or that I for sure believe in a God, like you say, like the, the classic sense, like this absolute high, right? I'm simply stating that in terms of analyzing reality, this shit is so complex that to fucking simply remove ourselves from one giant element of it is it's pretty fucking crazy, man. And I'm glad you bring up it this way, because in many ways, Kierkegaard is seeking to do something that other philosophers had sought to reject, which was it's not about rejecting suffering from our image. And you could even see this Voltaire who makes fun of Leibniz yeah. on the Best ground. Best of all possible world type shit. Exactly. Kierkegaard says, you know what? Suffering is a core part of it. And he's actually tapping into an earlier Christian theological position. So, in many ways, Kierkegaard is not really embracing the very common theodicy. Theodicy is a fancy term for the problem of evil. And much of Western Christianity was influenced by the North African philosopher Augustine. And Augustine kind of created the main model of theodicy that's popular amongst Western Christians. What Kierkegaard is modifying is actually a, a variant from Irenaeus. Um, 
Irenaeus of Lyon, a patristic philosopher as well. But he's also tapping into this, what's often called a soul maker theodicy, which is still a contemporary model of theodicy and philosophy of religion. And in this model, suffering and evil is allowed to occur because it allows us to create greater good through it. And this actually has a modeled in, if you will, in the incarnation itself, and at least in Christian theology, although one could absorb this claim, well, not necessarily involving that claim, that view. Now, the reason I bring this up then is because I'm going to circle back a little bit, and we're going to get back to the point of the passioned search for finding what to do with one's life, right? Now, when it comes to me personally, I have found that much of my suffering, I've had... I've had a, a multi-layered suffering in my brief 33 years of existence, okay? And the f- first, I'm going to say 30 years of my, well, you know, maybe I was happy when I was like six months old. I don't know, right? <laughs> don't Who the remember. fuck knows? I don't remember that far back, right? I don't know when the trauma of existence initially set in, right? But I'm sure somewhere shortly, actually, I remember like maybe four years old, I saw my first dead body, right? It was okay. at a funeral and I was oh, like, boy. what the fuck? People die? That shit's crazy, right? So that might have been the initial traumatic fucking instance that set in, right? But let's be a little bit generous here and let's say second or third grade, which is pretty consistent with my students when I ask them, right? Uh, so from second and third grade up until 30 years old, much of my quote unquote suffering, because again, you know, blessed, thankfully, appreciatively, but it came from not having any meaning, purpose, or direction in my life. Okay. Yes. And then something fucking weird happened when I turned 30 years old. I don't know what it was. We still, I talk about it all the time with my girlfriend, right? But something fucking happened. It's like a, a switch flipped when I turned 30 and a different sort of suffering replaced it. And that suffering was that which comes associated of fucking, of, uh, uh, of, Doing what it is that you fucking have to do, basically. I'm just going to keep it in, in brass tacks, dog. I mm-hmm. figured out what the fuck I need to do when I was 30, and a whole, a better, better form of suffering emerged and revealed itself to me. In this sense, before I was suffering because you know, anxiety, dread, despair, dude, I'm going to fucking live and die, and I've never even done nothing in this world. Like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I'm just giving myself away to these institutions, giving me meaning. Then I found the meaning and purpose, and the suffering was okay. Am I really going to fucking go out and do all this crazy? Am I going to live the ascetic life that Kierkegaard talks oh, about? Yes. And I told we talk about it a little bit later. We had time. Here we go. This is the, the ethical component of the Kierkegaardian conception, right? The, the leap to faith, if you will, which is weird to me because, well, what faith? I'm not a religious person, but it's still there, right? Do I continue to live this ascetic life, uh, Aaron, where you go out and you party, you get drunk, you do all that kind of shit that only brings fleeting temporary moments of pleasure? You see, and it's funny you get here to this larger claim. So a lot of like it's funny you prefaced it by saying, you know, there was probably some time in your life where life was good. Kierkegaard, as well as many of these Christian philosophers and theologians say, in reality, all of existence itself is suffering. So being itself is failing, it's disintegrating. This is a large tradition. Um, so even if even possibility itself is incomplete. Okay. Which is an interesting idea. And the idea behind this, connecting to what you claimed about greater good coming about from this realization, is for Kierkegaard this larger mission. So the aesthetic life, in many ways, reveals this larger truth about one's existence. And it's funny because for some philosophers, even like Emil Sorian, who's going to go in a very different, absurdist direction, is going to say this points to this larger truth. Even desire itself, in some senses, is suffering when we lose control of our ability to modulate and control it. But in a weird sense, reality itself puts us in a position where there's things we desire 
that we cannot control. And even when we do control our desires, we're in a state of change that is in itself suffering. And this points to larger truths about ourselves, which is this, that by the act of valuing in time, that is our ultimate power. Through that, do we acquire true freedom? It's through the act of choosing. And this is funny because this sounds like pretty radical, but in a weird patristic sense, this is actually a rejection of the stoic model of freedom. I'm going to have to step my game up with this fucking Christian philosophy, man. Again, and part of me feels, okay, let me get, let me give you further context into this, right? But um, I feel, I guess it's just a hang up at this point because as we already discussed, the whole Christian, it's just a fucking word, man. Yeah, there's, yeah. Uh, there's hidden knowledge, if you will, right? That is contained within, people, dude, man, like, this is just a continuation of some knowledge that has existed for longer than 2000 years, right? This Christian, this Christian faith, right? It's being able to put aside all the negative associations and connotations perhaps that have come with it. But more importantly, more importantly, it's learning to be able to realize that at its fucking absolute core, and this is where we're going to get back to the existential element of the Kierkegaardian philosophy, is understanding that much of the knowledge that we have has been filtered through a fucking institutional force, in this case of Kierkegaard, this state church body, right, mm -hmm. that has in it a vested interest in establishing, it's kind of like this leveling process, yes, conformity among all people, right? So, how it comes to me personally, it's so fucking funny, man. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to tell you, and I'm, I should... I'm going to qualify by saying it's slightly embarrassing, but I shouldn't be embarrassed no, no, no. about it. It's more embarrassing that I'm embarrassed about it. But this idea started coming to me uh, during my research, if you will, into conspiracy theories on Instagram. Okay. Right? Okay. And for some reason, why? Not for, I don't know. For some, I know the reason, right? But what I'm trying to say is that I don't know when this started happening, but somewhere along the line, the conspiracy theory underground has been infiltrated by conservative religious people. Oh, yes, yes. And they have found it as a way, as a backdoor entry. Like, oh, shit, you think space is fake? Well, what about dinosaurs? What about X, Y, and Z, right? And they'll quickly spiral from, you know, the firmament and the dome oh, and the yes, flat earth yes. into Genesis. You know what I'm saying? And, okay, so here's where it gets funny. Initially, initially, part of me was like, yo, what the fuck? This is stupid, right? How the fuck how the fuck are these religious people going to be so bold as to make this leap to faith, if you will, right? Oops. However, uh -huh. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut no, you no, off. Go for it. However, though, I sat down. The more it kept emerging, which, by the way, as a side note, speaks a fucking ton to the nature of social media and how influential it is on people, right? Yeah. But uh, as more of these fucking uh, uh, religious fundamentalists emerged in my conspiracy theory threads, the more I started thinking to myself, okay, why am I so quick to dismiss what Christian people have to say? Is it possible that maybe some of what they have to say is knowledgeable and can help me as an individual in you know, furthering my understanding of reality? Well... I think when we analyze this is let's assume the worst case scenario that let's assume Christianity is indeed only those people. This is not true because it's not for sure. <laughs> patristic, like in terms of patristics, by the way, the idea of a literal interpretation is a very late development. It's funny because it originally was sold during the Reformation as scientific, believe it or not, to make sense of Newtonian mechanics. And there's an element of race to it that actually popped up in the new world. Because the idea was there's these silly fuddy-duddy Catholics <laughs> with their Native Americans not liking slavery, 
Okay. That is the problem. And so England had to justify its behaviors. And notice, England later on will encounter Oriental Orthodox Christians in Ethiopia and had cited against them with various um, states, okay, that were keeping them as slaves. And they had to come up with new views of scientific racism. It's a whole different issue, okay? But let's assume for a brief moment that all of Christianity is indeed those people. Well, in that case, we can look at this larger dimension of what that says about human beings and the nature of the problem posing we have. And I think it's here where the Christian worldview and even the way they interact with some things like mind, for example, appear. So to go back briefly to Jean-Paul Sartre and Gabriel Marcel, Marcel is one of the first, next to Merleau-Ponty, to argue that for an embodied constitution. And he argues originally against Sartre, because Sartre very famously used this ontology of the for itself and in itself, along with this dialectical method. Okay. Which is his take on Marxism. It's it's a whole different thing right there. <laughs> but for Marcel, one experiences one's mind in the body. And the act of choosing and feeling appears sometimes totally in the body. So think about those times you give yourself a reason for something. And you have this rational capacity. But one still feels the sense of anxiety in itself. And for... And this is funny because this is tapping into this larger ethical tradition that both Marcel and Kierkegaard are actually talking about. And it even goes back to Boethus and Gregory of Nyssa, these patristic Christian philosophers. So historically, Christians weren't just natural law theorists. They often had virtue ethics and even a variant of deontology. In fact, sadly, we've lost a large amount of this type of work. But the Visigoths, for example, like Boethus, had a deontology. Gregory of Nyssa had something almost like Kant. But that's a very different tradition of philosophy in itself. But for Marcel, we sometimes give ourselves reasons or we know what's virtuous and we fail. Our body tells us it's not. And this points to this larger dimension of how we experience ourselves in the world. Literally, he uses that word. And this is a very bold move, by the way, because at this time in France, Heidegger's not a good guy, right? <laughs> you know, he was siding with the Nazis. Sartre called them out on it. Ponty actually possibly made up fake Husserlian works that secretly use Heideggerian language to use his stuff. But Marcel here is being honest and using this word that otherwise harkens back to this person who's hated. As far as the as far as the tradition of the Christian existentialist is concerned, how we're gonna circle it back around and pin it back into the Kierkegaardian realm, following this fucking of all things, I'm telling you, the conspiracy theory fucking thread, right? It's simple. As I was engaging with these ideas, I realized to myself, why is it so easy for me to fucking not accept? Because I don't accept anything per se. First of all, let me qualify it further and say I'm definitely still not religious, right? Mm -hmm. Still mm -hmm. not, no, not definitely not a Christian, never will be, right? I can't get over the fucking ancestral trauma of what they what they did, right? Yeah. Won't get over it. I'm sorry, can't forget, right? But um I started thinking to myself, like, why is it so easy for me to fucking at least entertain the idea of a flat earth. I definitely don't believe in the flat earth, right? But I can fuck with the idea. The idea of a simulation theory, more prominent in philosophy, mm -hmm. like it's easy for us to engage with these ideas. But why is it then so difficult to engage with Christian texts, right? So as I'm going through again, rereading this Kierkegaardian character, I start to realize like, yo, much of what he's saying is essentially this, it's, this is a famous quote. Once you see the way broadly, you'll see it in all things, right? 
And it's kind of like this Christian faith is touching upon that in a sense as well with greater truths. Now, what happens is the fucking Catholic Church, the church in general, comes along and sanitizes religion and makes it more appeasable and amenable to people who don't necessarily have the strength. I'm using very Nietzschean language here, right? Yeah. But you, can, you know, the two could be very easily conflated with, if not for that one big distinction of their belief, right? Mm-hmm. But um, they don't necessarily have the strength. If you follow this Kierkegaardian character, not necessarily uh, word for word, but to be a Christian person, that it requires an immense amount of work to be a Christian person, right? So where we spiral off from there to a non-Christian person like myself is simple. Okay. For Kierkegaard, being Christian is part and parcel to living a good life. Yes? Well, it's funny you say that. He disagrees with that. Oh, okay. In fact, for Kierkegaard, you could have a good life without Christianity. No, no, no. I meant for him personally. Oh, yes. No, for no, him. for him personally. Totally. Yeah, totally. Yes, yeah. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Right? But uh, continue, though, if you would, for uh, how what you thought you were going to go on with. So, for Kierkegaard, it might be that one lives a good life without Christianity. You could live a meaningful life. But he would probably agree that at a metaphysical level, one lives good in this larger theological concepts with Christianity. And it's funny you bring up this issue of the church, because for Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, they both share this rejection. When they talk institutionalized religion, they don't mean necessarily the church itself. What they mean, actually, is the development of philosophy of religion in the time of Kant and Hegel. And what they had in mind was this instrumentalization of the view of God, which had already started in the late Enlightenment and in the Reformation. In this worldview, one posits God as a postulate of practical reason. What that means, practical reason, refers to the bringing about of the end of an action. So in this model, I use God as a way to reach some end. Okay. And if, for those of you, I'm sure you've talked about Jamesian pragmatism, for example, which there's realist and anti-realist versions of his interpretation of philosophy of religion. But in this model, I use God as a tool. Kierkegaard and Nietzsche both agree, amusingly, along with some patristic authors about this as well, that you should never do this because you don't believe in God anymore. What you do is you believe in something else. You believe in the comfort of believing in God or fitting into society. And it's funny, somebody like Basil the Great is even going to say this. Basil the Great, by the way, is a, a patristic Christian. He's not very theolo- He's more of a theologian than a philosopher, actually. But he's going to be very famously say that, and I forgot which homily it is, that most of the people in hell are going to be priests. <laughs> and notice, he's a clergyman himself, and he has no problem saying this. In many ways, they're going back into this larger tradition, but they're also, well, this is here, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche. But Kierkegaard is also seen here as rectifying and offering a remedy for this rejection of this view. And it's funny because Kierkegaard is also developing a time where he's the first, not Marx, okay, to coin the word alienation. Mm-hmm, absolutely. This is very important. Yep. And for him, alienation is more than cutting off from one's labor. That is to say, one's work in the production of time to produce some good. Okay. Yep. Instead, for him, alienation also occurs at the level of psyche. And he actually points to some of these utopian schemes that are going on. Probably at this round of time, I could be a little wrong on the years here, but it's going to be things like the French Commune, right? Um, the Carians, things like this type of group. All these movements, he think, are examples of inauthenticity. People are seeking excuses. And we could even tie this back in, perhaps, to the development of conspiracy theories at times. We need this explanation that gives order to the world. Yeah, no doubt. But for Kierkegaard, it's not there because all people are incomplete in some sense. Nobody has the answers. We're always living in a state of reaction to other people. 
Marcel also caught this with his view of dialogue. In fact, in many ways, Marcel's point is also epistemological against Sartre. It's not just that there being lacks, that there's this ontology system that Sartre's talking about is false. It's that we don't know reality through these two categories. In reality, that's all me. It's not really reality. It's all me projecting. So this gets back to, again, I mean, I know I apologize again if our heads are spinning. Okay. It's a lot of theory per se, but I promise you everything that we've been discussing has been interrelated in fucking one way, shape or form or another. The idea that, you know, we just discussed here briefly is one that we discussed at the very beginning again, namely that of language as this tool that helps reveal to us different worlds. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And when it comes to this kicker guardian character, it's like, okay, dog. Yeah. You can cite to me scripture, but have you fucking engaged with the scripture? Have you fucking led the life where you try to actually walk in the shoes of this Christ-like figure? Mm -hmm. Have you actually tried to do what Jesus would fucking do? Or are you just fucking spitting some shit that you were fucking brainwashed with back in your, you know, Sunday school days? Because if that's the case, then you're not really a Christian, dog. And you're not really suffering. If nothing more, you're just another cog in a machine in this fucking weird subliminal way that is not living uh, uh, authentically. You know what I'm saying? And I mean, that's... that's one of my favorite things about Kierkegaard. He talks about a shit. You bring it up, the philosophers of religion, right? He says, what, what does he say? I got a quote here, but you don't mind I share. Uh, he says that um, theologians in general know little of suffering, but a great deal of suffering. So what he means by that is like two ways of suffering. One is to suffer, of which theologians in general don't really know much about because they live a very comfortable existence, right? And the other is to become a professor of the fact that another has suffered, yes, right? Yes. You could be an expert in other people's suffering, having never been a sufferer, having never suffered yourself, right? He's got this uh, another, I have to share this quote because I thought it was fucking hilarious when I read it. He's referring to, I don't really know who this is. So maybe you can enlighten me if you do, if you do, but Le- Leo Perello, Leo Perello. Leo Perello, he does not ring a bell to me. No? Okay, I, was, I didn't even bother looking it up. I don't fucking care, right? But just <laughs> from the context in general, uh, I got the central gist that Leo Perello was exactly exa- exactly that which he's talking about. Uh, what he's saying here is that these philosophers in general, right, but also the philosophies of religion, the theologians, that basically what happens is that we've made rational, we've been made, ra- uh, we've been made rational rather at the expense of how to live an authentic life, how to live in general, right? And he uses this figurehead of Leo Perello. Again, I don't know who it is, but he juxtaposes him next to the Don Juan character, right? Yes, yes. And the quote that he states specifically is, Don Juan seduces the girls and Leo Perello notes down the time place and description of the lady right as in it's obviously a very clumsy sexist metaphor for the idea being this don juan character goes out and fucking lives life right and the leo perello character looks sits back and watches this you know don juan character living their best life right and this is the exact opposite of what a Kierkegaardian character is fucking asking of us right the best example i don't know how familiar you are with jordan peterson you familiar with him at all i'm a little bit a little bit okay the slaying of the dragon and all that kind of shit right yes what makes me laugh dog is that jordan peterson for all intents and purposes is essentially a leo perella character that we've talked about right exactly i I don't know him personally i've never had the privilege of meeting him personally um however from what i can gather he has this you know this elaborate fucking system built about you know going off and slaying the dragon and all that kind of shit but as far as i can tell the greatest dragon that this motherfucker has ever dealt with 
is fucking gum disease. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> what the fuck has this motherfucker done? What has he, you know, like he's a, he's an author. He's a fucking tenured professor. Okay, cool. But like, have you ever engaged with life in a real fucking practical way? You know what I'm saying? It's funny because this quote also has, takes on a larger baggage. So, um, Don Juan here is also this larger, like late scholastic figure. He's a mockery of late scholastic metaphysics, late scholastic theology. And in this world, we cut up in this, post-Eritalian system, okay, being itself into little categories and little boxes. And from there, we can determine through a subject-predicate relationship all of reality. And Kierkegaard's here saying is, even if I grasp your concept of suffering, just like Jordan Peterson claims to do with his neo-Jungian psychoanalysis, and there's a lot of doubt about what that is here, okay? Uh, let's just be charitable, I guess. Cultural it, Marxism is not a thing, you fuck. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, continue. No, 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 yes. <laughs> and... It's not telling you anything about actual suffering. You need to experience suffering to have knowledge of it. And this is an early version of what we call standpoint epistemology. Although Kierkegaard himself is not as radical as some later, let's say, feminist versions of this that will develop later. For Kierkegaard, there are certain states and feelings that are purely subjective, and one cannot know them or triangulate them outside of us. And this is an interesting kind of um, almost Wittgensteinian point about private language. If it's totally private, I cannot know it. It's not real. There is yeah. no such thing as private revelations that produce truth for Kierkegaard. It's always experienced in the world with others. Again, just another fucking gem from this Kierkegaardian character, the active life of engaging, the, the active process of engaging with life for better or for worse, man. And I guess for the better or for worse part is how we'll fucking slowly wind this bitch down because we're over the hour long mark, which Ooh. is perfectly fine. It's perfectly fine with me, right? In fact, if we're being honest, we could do this fucking multiple times. And I hope that, you know, you do choose to do so. Come back at whenever you're free. I know you got a busy course load, but... um. Uh, the point here being with actually engaging with life, and I'll do so by by way of introducing again, reintroducing the Jordan Peterson example. Um, I talk a lot of shit, right? But honestly, in this particular case, it's because I find it very, I find it very offensive. Not only how he, there's a great Seinfeld. Are you are you up with Seinfeld? Yeah, yeah. Okay, oh, yes. so uh, you're familiar with the episode where Watley converts to Judaism? Yes, yes. And fucking Jerry's like, uh, I'm concerned. That Watley is concerning to Judaism, right? And uh, strictly for the jokes, and he goes to the, the to, <laughs> the, to the, the, the the priest or whatever to confess, Rubble, right? Yeah. And the priest responds by saying, "And this offends you as a Jewish person?" And he's and jo uh, Jerry responds by saying, "No, it offends me as a fucking comedian. Like what are you <laughs> saying? These jokes are terrible. They're hacky. They're corny. They're old school jokes, right? So that that in one on one level, that's where I that's where I get offended from this uh, Jordan Peterson character. It's like, goddamn, dude, you're recycling this fucking psychobabble bullshit. That's not even real fucking philosophy, and you're fucking packaging it up in this easily accessible form for people who are non-initiated and passing it off as this profound insight, right? But on a more fundamental level, the anger and issues stems from the anger with his uh, uh, stance specifically stems from you're not really walking that walk dog like you talk a lot of shit but you are very much this character that Kierkegaard is talking about the instance here personally is uh, I don't know again how familiar you are with him but he was uh, and he admitted himself to a rehab clinic right yeah, yes because of his wife's condition with cancer and I'm like yo that's the fucking dragon you've been talking about this whole time the your wife battling cancer that's where the dread comes in 
That's where the despair comes in. That's where the anxiety comes in. The fucking angst, the, the, the confrontation with the finite nature of human existence of both you and your wife. You know what I'm saying? No, exactly. And like, I think the thing that galls me about Jordan Peterson is the level and authenticity has for peddling kind of like these weird biological essentialist claims. Oh, we can talk about that some at fucking length, at length, bro. Right, yeah. this whole I'm, t- I'm I'm convinced it's just some backdoor Christendom and conservatism, but like I said, that's just that's that's for a different day, right? Yeah. Um, in this particular instance, uh, the basic gist though is that yo, you 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 have to engage with that shit, and I trust me, I get very well the desire to not want to fucking live through that kind. of... I'm dealing with it right now, me personally. I you know I've told you personally, I actually haven't mentioned on the podcast, so I ain't gonna say shit about it, right? But you know personally the kind of shit that yes, you know yes. that I'm dealing with, right? Um, and you know. I understand full well the desire to, you know, satiate or, or placate rather the, the negative emotions that are, are, are inherent with such a travesty to befall your family, right? But it's in those negative emotions and it's, it, just keep it short, man. It's, that's the suffering, right? That's the suffering. And that's kind of how, that's where I was really, really fucking really drawn to the Kicker Guardian character because it's going to straight up say like, ah, oh, dude, you don't fucking seek to sanitize it. You don't seek to just give that suffering away to Jesus and hope that he'll take it away and magically cure it. You fucking engage with that shit, bro. And you learn from life and everything that it reveals to you from it. Well, it's funny because Kierkegaard's argument, and he makes a very clear argument here, is the reason why it's so personal is because suffering only exists because you value. Exactly. Exactly. And that value is you. And this is a very Nietzschean argument. One's existence only exists is or coextensive with the expression of value. No values, you do not exist. That simple. <laughs> That more than anything, I believe, is a perfect way to end this. Obviously, as a fucking Nietzschean fanboy, what better way than with a Nietzsche quote and idea, right? So, um, before I do, is there anything else maybe that you had in mind that you wanted to get off your chest before we cut this bit short or cut it to an end? I should say it's fucking an hour and twenty minutes long. No, I think that's it. That's enough. <laughs> I don't. I shouldn't have qualified it by giving you the time because I don't want to give you the impression I'm in a rush. No, I can no, always no. fucking cut this bitch in two, right? Okay, okay. But if you had any ideas, I don't. I don't. I you know. Obviously, it's, it's very time-consuming, labor-intensive for you and to come out here. And I really I fucking do appreciate all. it because hopefully the people who are listening to this have gleaned as much from it as you have, right? As I have, I should say, rather very grandiose of me to say, you have gleaned from this, Aaron, not me. Well, <laughs> right? I think I do, honestly, like interacting with these ideas at a personal level because this is not the type of philosophy that one can simply read. One has to engage with others with it. Absolutely. And that's it's very different. And I, I think there is one thing I would say is that um, this is still a contemporary type of field and contemporary like philosophers like whether it's Lev Shevtov or Christos Yanidas or Jacques Martin or even um, some philosophers like um, that are kind of on the sides of the tradition like Sorian are all kind of figuring other types of fields not just axiology or the study of values there's elements of epistemology philosophy of mind I mean for example nowadays they're even pioneering relational metaphysics so they're rejecting oh a substance-based metaphysics but it's not process-based okay um you even see other things such as postmodern metaphysics which is a very different thing where metaphysics is expressed in narratives and the narratives are the actual objects and these objects are relational so i mean there's a lot of interesting work going on and so much and it's funny because one need not believe that one has to be a realist or an anti-realist sure there's anti-realists about god and christian theologians like don cupid but that's actually a very minority view in reality i think most of them are realists and some might even critique the field for that and i think that's a fair critique perhaps i think they'd bite the bullet in a very Kirkguardian vein all right well with that said 
Um, I hope you all enjoyed this shit as much as I did. Quick fucking pro quote before I get in a quick quote. What the fuck am I saying right now? <laughs> right? A little quick uh, uh, a peace out to the people who have been listening so far. We're about an hour and 20 minutes in, especially those of you who are just joining in, not to the, this particular podcast itself, but to my entire podcast itself, right? Shout out to the people, the one person in Australia who downloaded this bitch recently. What's up? The person in uh, Romania who downloaded this is not a humble brag. This is simply acknowledging the people who are listening to this shit. Uh, I got a folk from a couple folks from Canada right shout out to you we're taking this bitch global dog and I appreciate you fucking tuning in uh, with the help of people like my boy Aaron here I'm hoping to just continue to liberate the knowledge from these academic institutions that fucking you know have held it private for too long right so with that said I hope you all have a great rest of your day actually before I leave do do you want to leave them with somewhere where they can potentially find you on social media you know honestly I only have my Facebook and you can feel free to follow me I don't mind I love talking philosophy I live one of my goals is to make philosophy accessible to everybody liberating the knowledge he's liberating the knowledge motherfuckers I'm sorry I didn't mean to cut you off no 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 I encourage you that's great it's true I think that is the goal and you can contact me through there I mean that's usually the easiest way there we go Aaron Alvarez is on Facebook your boy OG underscore Ice Nice 13 on Instagram and Ice Nice on Facebook so with that said I hope you all have a great rest of your day and we'll see you next time peace